This is a submedia production. Hello, and welcome to Circle A. I'm your host, JR. For this episode, we'll be revisiting an interview we did back in 2017 with anarchist author and theorist Peter Gelderlos, where he spoke to us about counterinsurgency strategy and how it is used by governments, not just in foreign wars of occupation, but also against their national population at all times. We started off by asking him for his definition of counterinsurgency and how it tends to play out on the ground. Uh, Counterinsurgency is basically the constant war that states carry out against their own populations. Uh, They are efforts at pacification uh, in order to manage conflict and ensure uh, the stability and continuity of governance. Basically, counterinsurgency as a, as a state philosophy arose as um, specialists working for the state, as state institutions analyzed their failures and weaknesses in the anti-colonial uh, struggles of the 50s and 60s and, and the particularly urban and, and other domestic struggles within uh, powerful colonizing states of the 60s and 70s. Um, So the British experience trying to put down the anti-colonial uprising in Kenya, uh, the French experience trying to put down the anti-colonial uprising in Algeria, um, experiences of uh, resisting or or, trying to um, put down the the movements of May 1968, uh, the Black Liberation Movement and others in the United States and and so forth. Basically, after a long time, uh, state actors and specialists working for the state had come to believe state mythology about the nature of the state, that the state was uh, inevitable, natural, good, a force for peace, uh, for, for bringing people up, um, uh, for improving people's livings, uh, living conditions. And so, understandably, they uh, thought that the, the nature of society under the state uh, was to be at peace. And that this piece was only interrupted by outside agitators, uh, by by special actors. Uh, So therefore, understandably, um, policing philosophy prior to this idea of counterinsurgency focused on identifying and excluding these outside agitators and preserving or protecting society's natural state. Uh, In light of their failures in the 50s, 60s, 70s, um, they realized that actually the natural state under uh, the natural state of society under the state, under state authority, was conflict. Uh, That people will always develop or tend towards an antagonistic relationship with those who are trying to govern them because governing, as we all know, means exploitation, it means surveillance, it means control, uh, it means mm, fucking people over, uh, in a word. Um, So, the counterinsurgency philosophy is an evolution of state thinking, recognizing that governance is always conflictive, it's always antagonistic. So in order to maintain uh, stability and continuity for governance, uh, they have to permanently manage conflict. They can't think of conflict as something to be avoided, but something that has to be permanently managed. Um, and according to, to Frank Kitson and uh, some of the other uh, first military 
uh, theorists around counterinsurgency, um, the, the objective is to maintain the level of conflict at the lowest levels, at levels of uh, simple um, dissidence or nonviolence, and not allow those conflicts to, to evolve to, um, to more uh, insurrectional or, or revolutionary levels. Uh, so the state itself understands the sort of hierarchy of threats from simple dissidence uh, to, uh, to nonviolent uh, protest and resistance to more combative forms of, of resistance, which are capable of threatening state power. So the purpose of counterinsurgency is to maintain the conflict, these lower non-threatening levels. Um, let's see what, uh, what this tells us about, um, uh, about the nature of the state, uh, of course, the, that it's our enemy. Uh, this certainly gives credence to the anarchist idea of social war which is that the state constitutes warfare against us, against governed populations uh, permanently and constantly. Next up, we asked Peter to define the historic process of militarization and talk about the ways it has played out across the ages during early state formation, as well as the modern parallels that exist in the world today. Uh, militarization is a process of uh, encouraging acceptance for authoritarianism and, and hierarchy within society. So it basically creates more legitimacy for ideas of governance, creates more popular participation in governance, uh, and, and more popular acceptance for the, the diverse forms of authority and hierarchy that states need in order to function. Uh, so it's, it's a process of, of militarizing society, creating military discipline and, and military norms within society. Um, looking back at early states, uh, so going back a thousand or, or, or thousands of years, this is sort of a modification of the, the rival states polity, which is one of the anthropological explanation, explanations for state formation, where within a sort of regional system, you have different hierarchical societies that are each becoming more hierarchical as they engage in warfare with one another. So they're seeking competitive advantage against the neighboring society by becoming more militaristic, more hierarchical, developing more techniques of warfare and above all military organization within the society. Um, that uh, Basically that's, that's a model for explaining how it happens but not exactly why it happens. There's some problems with that model because it's easy to assume that when you have societies that, that are neighbors that uh, engage in, in warfare, that it's inevitable that they develop states, it's inevitable that they become more hierarchical. In fact, there's strong military advantages to being a decentralized society. Uh, the rival states model is most, uh, rival state, uh, rival polities, sorry, the rival polities uh, model of state formation is most effective at sort of describing what happens when you have two authoritarian society, uh, societies that, that are neighbors, where they already have some kind of pre-existing elite, and those elites use these processes of, of warfare as an opportunity to win more power, uh, to increase hierarchization, which is already present in their societies. Um, the, I chose the name of militarization, actually borrowing it from uh, debates uh, that were happening uh, here in the Spanish state in the 20th century during the Spanish Civil War. Uh, militarización was the, the sort of big debate about whether or not to militarize the militias. Uh, these were volunteer workers' militias formed by anarchists, by um, 
communists outside of the Communist Party, uh, Trotskyists and other dissident communists. Uh, and these, these were the forces that were the first line fighting against fascists uh, for the first half year of the Spanish Civil War. Um, the, the government, the Spanish Republican government with the Stalinists, the uh, socialists, other left-wing uh, factions uh, were very threatened by these militias because it, it completely undermined, it destroyed the state monopoly on organized violence. They wanted to get rid of these militias at any cost, even if it meant losing the war. Uh, so the big debate was that a regular army would be more effective, Spain needed a regular army. So that was militarization. So instead of um, just treating militarization as, as something that happened uh, among Neolithic societies thousands of years ago, uh, I wanted to underline that it's, it's a constant uh, dynamic in state formation, uh, which is also in itself a, a constant process. It's not that states formed a long time ago and that was it. States are constantly crumbling. They're constantly falling apart. They uh, inevitably exist in an antagonistic relationship with their own societies and with their neighbors. So they have to constantly uh, reform themselves. In that way, state formation is something of a constant process. Um, so state authority in much of the Iberian Peninsula had collapsed with this partially failed fascist coup attempt in July 1936. Large parts of, uh, of, um, of the Iberian Peninsula, of the territory governed by the Spanish state, uh, started being self-organized. Um, and so militarization was the principal strategy that the state used to reassert its authority. Uh, it can also be seen um, maybe on a, a smaller degree uh, in, in other more recent examples, with um, post-war, like post-World War II democratic societies, one major element of um, militarization has decreased. Uh, that's the element of popular participation in military processes. Uh, with the society of the spectacle, we're more um, meant to be spectators to these processes. So militarization today is uh, more present as an acceptance of military norms uh, for the organizing of society or the presence of military forces in daily democratic life. So that's an opportunistic, opportunistic use of uh, terrorist attacks from France to Italy to the United States, getting people to accept the presence of, um, of the military in the streets, of armed soldiers, uh, police with automatic weapons uh, in the streets, getting to accept that as normal, getting to accept that as anything other than what it is, which is a direct threat against all of us. It's a, a constant um, boot in our face, to, to borrow a phrase from Orwell. Um, but what is less uh, present in uh, democratic societies of today is this sort of... Um, uh, citizen recruiting, this, this recruiting of direct participation in more militaristic activities among the citizenry. Uh, nowadays, whereas in previous generations, our duty as citizens was to, to sign up, either directly join the military or in other ways take on these roles of, um, of, of soldiers at the, uh, at the, at the orders of, of society's elite. Uh, nowadays, our duty in the face of these processes of militarization is to go on being consumers. So keep buying, keep shopping, don't be afraid. Uh, and mm, well, the, you know, of course it needs to be mentioned the, uh, the duty of, uh, of being snitches, the duty of surveilling our neighbors. Um, but beyond that, there, there isn't so much of a, of a call to duty. Um, so that's definitely a change in the strategy of how militarization works. It's a change related to uh, sort of post-war post democratic societies that are more consumer-based societies. Uh, 
uh, it remains to be seen um, how that affects uh, a state's possibilities for social control, right? Because usually um, as states evolve, they try to become stronger, but also there's always a give and take. As societies push back, there are certain weapons or tools that states state sort of back away from. Uh, since we haven't had um, a major uh, democratic state just completely collapse um, since, uh, since World War II, we haven't seen yet if this more uh, pampered consumer mentality means that states have also surrendered or lost certain weapons. When push comes to shove, if you have a crisis as extreme as the one that was affecting um, multiple democratic societies in the 30s that eventually led to uh, the 20s and 30s that eventually led to the rise of fascism, will states be able to mobilize their citizens again the same way? Uh, that remains to be seen. Um, uh, maybe because of this sort of new uh, pampered, uh, passive um, spectator's take on what it means to be a citizen to a democracy, maybe that's also changed uh, people's basic values and expectations of, of what the state can ask them uh, to do. And maybe that means that in a way states have, have also become weaker by losing certain, certain tools and weapons while gaining other ones uh, related to um, uh, social control during times of economic growth. Um, or whether states have, have become uh, stronger in an absolute sense and have gained new weapons and tools related to the society, to, to spectator and consumer society uh, without losing these, these other um, older, uh, more, more brutal weapons. Um, and these, the, the, the successes and failings of different um, neo-fascist uh, and, and white supremacist movements in different com uh, countries, I think, give some indications as to whether that old threat is still there or to whether it's actually uh, reduced in scope. But uh, like I said, it, it sort of remains to be seen what the, what the answer on that is. In modern Western democracies, the state rarely resorts to overt military force preferring instead to rely on so-called less lethal police violence, infiltration, mass surveillance, and imprisonment. Just as harmful as these repressive mechanisms, though, is the ability for governments to recuperate the efforts of people who were initially seeking to undermine it. An uncomfortably stark example of this phenomenon is the United States parole system, which was originally contrived by critics of prison as a way of reducing incarceration and moving towards alternative justice models. Within less than a generation of its inception, it has become a pillar of the prison industrial complex, and all those years of well-intentioned work are now serving to keep far more people in jail for far longer. So repression is uh, basically the, the attempts by the state um, to punish and to enclose uh, and to isolate and therefore neutralize um, or to neutralize through, through liquidation uh, threats to its authority. Uh, recuperation uh, are the attempts to integrate uh, threats to authority to uh, redirect them uh, towards um, uh, non-threatening modes or modes that even regenerate, uh, reform uh, or um, uh, modify state power in a way that, that makes states more able to respond to similar threats. Um, it's a bit too much of a simplification to think of them as, as uh, the carrot and the stick. Um, 
Uh, although there is certainly that dynamic, uh, the state has the ability to both punish and reward. Um, but uh, the, um, I think the, one of the primary uh, or some of the primary dynamics are uh, enclosure identification uh, and integration or, or reabsorption. So that's uh, really a lot more uh, complex than just like uh, carrot and stick. Um, one good example would be the, uh, the Canvies riots uh, here in Barcelona um, a few years ago, 2014. Um, the uh, both the state and the media were trying to enclose what was happening. They were trying to uh, isolate it to keep it from spreading so they could more easily control it uh, or eliminate it. Uh, the police enclosure failed. People beat the police on the streets through combative tactics, through spreading, through mobility. Um, once the police could no longer, uh, once they, they, they showed that they didn't have the capabilities of, of physically or, or violently enclosing what was happening, in the end it was actually the media enclosure that functioned. The media enclosure functioned by convincing people, both within and, and without the movement, um, what, what the, those riots were about, what was happening, why people were taking to the streets, why people were breaking the rules of democratic normality and social peace. Uh, so they uh, basically sold this convincing narrative that those riots were about one social center. That gave the city government grounds to negotiate because previously uh, everyone was refusing any kind of direct formal negotiations with the city government. Therefore, if they weren't going to negotiate, if they weren't going to make demands, the city government could offer nothing that would put an end to the riots. Of course, the riots were about much more than one social center. Many of the people who were in the streets had never even gone to that social center. Maybe they didn't even like it. The riots were about um, uh, our access to the city. Uh, who owns the city? Does it belong to the tourists, the property owners, the cops, uh, uh, the, the politicians, or does it belong to neighbors, to immigrants, uh, to regular people? Um, once the media could effect that enclosure, that sort of um, semantic enclosure, uh, then the city could negotiate even though they had no one else at the negotiating table. They could give us canvias, they could uh, cancel the eviction of that one social center and then achieve an end to the rioting and keep the rioting from spreading uh, in an insurrectionary way throughout the whole city. Um, and, and that worked. So that was a way of recuperating uh, the, the riots by um, uh, changing their meaning and integrating them into a narrative that uh, made sense in a democratic framework, uh, allowing people to, uh, to, to return to normality, taking out the most subversive elements of, of what was happening, which was actually uh, raising this question of uh, who owns the city? Who does the city belong to? Who do the streets belong to? Uh, so through that media enclosure, through that form of sort of uh, ideological or semantic recuperation, um, the state was able to make that very subversive, ultimately revolutionary question go away. Um, so, uh, so recuperation and repression, uh, they work hand in hand. Um, and uh, sometimes they work in parallel, sometimes they work as, as sort of different options that, uh, that a state uh, has access to. Often the right wing, um, is uh, tends more to use uh, repression. The left wing tends more to use recuperation, but that's not by any means true. A lot of times, actually, the left wing is more uh, capable at uh, when they're in power at engaging in uh, police repression 
uh, because of certain recuperative processes that are happening simultaneously. So, for example, the government of Evo Morales in, um, in Bolivia, uh, a very, uh, very left-wing government that uh, came from a, a political party that was created by the grassroots, they were more effective at using police repression um, because they had already divided social movements by integrating many social movements institutionally uh, into government, giving people jobs, giving people funding, creating these discourses that convinced people that now this new government was on their side. So when they used repression, uh, the only people who responded to that repression were the people specifically targeted, uh, specific indigenous groups, specific anarchist groups, etc. And they could even use um, other left-wing groups like labor unions to attack groups that were being critical towards government policies. Whereas previously when the right wing attacked any sector of these social movements, everyone came back out into the streets, they shut cities down, uh, they, they went head to head with the military. So um, there's really no strict simple equivalence between repression, recuperation, right wing, left wing, stick and carrot. Uh, these are simultaneous processes that, um, that operates uh, through um, ideas of integration in narratives, integration in society, integration in institutions, uh, enclosure, uh, which is very important, being able to isolate people either, either physically or, or um, uh, in terms of at the level of identities, uh, at the level of semantics. Uh, and then keeping subversive questions from being posed or subversive practices from spreading. Squatting, for example. Um, once squatting became an urban identity, it lost uh, most of its subversive value because it was no longer a practice that anyone could use uh, that questioned the very idea of, um, of housing and of, of private property and became simply what another urban subculture does, part of their identity. So once squatting uh, turned into squatters uh, as, as a specific identity, it was largely recuperated. Um, and that, of course, went hand in hand with specific repressive practices, criminalizing squatting and, and so forth. States are formed and continue to exist as a hierarchy of claims on a given territory. The most foundational of these, the one upon which all others are built, is the ability to monopolize force across the land base. Once this has been established, the less overtly violent aspects of statecraft can be organized. After enough time has passed and the effects of nationalism take root, physically mobilizing the distribution of troops can be de-emphasized in favor of things like media and educational propaganda. This leads to a situation where maintaining the legitimacy of state institutions becomes one of if not the most important part of counterinsurgency. This is especially true within a democracy. Democracy encourages participation in government and it also allows the construction of a um, consensus uh, among the elite, uh, manufacturing of, of common interests. Um, when we talk about the elite, we're not talking about a shadowy conspiracy or any uh, homogenous group. Uh, we're talking about elite actors, actors with more access to power, either in economic terms, political terms, cultural terms. Uh, and they have very different interests, uh, some sectors of the elite uh, from others. For example, Trump's Muslim ban 
um, in general didn't adversely affect uh, the traditional sectors of the capitalist economy, like the finance sector, the real estate sector, but it really did hurt the tech sector because companies like Google, Facebook, Apple need to be able to recruit intellectual capital uh, in their terms on a worldwide scale. And so they, uh, it's actually hurting them if, uh, if you're cutting out like such a large uh, proportion of the world's population. Um, so uh, with uh, democratic government, you encourage uh, debate among uh, elite sectors. You encourage debate about the best strategies of social control, the best strategies of uh, protecting and encouraging the capitalist economy. Um, you also protect capitalists from popular anger by producing this mechanism of, of recuperation, of constantly switching back and forth between different political parties and therefore getting people to direct their, um, their anger at specific political parties rather than at the ruling class as a bloc. Um, democracy also encourages uh, a liberal Western concept of the individual, uh, the individual as this isolated unit with rights that pertain to public participation, which means participation within uh, a centralized and, and hierarchical sphere of uh, decision-making, rather than uh, this organic being in the world who exists uh, according to communal relationships, according to relationships with the natural environment. Uh, the liberal individual has no right uh, to, to, to a home. Uh, they have a right to look for work and try to sell their labor power in order to pay for housing, which is different from a home. Um, the liberal individual breathes uh, on an individual basis simply with their lungs, whereas actual um, living human beings like other organisms only breathe as part of a pretty complex network, which includes also forests, algae, other living beings, and so forth. Um, uh, so in other words, you can, you can uh, poison the, 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 the liberal individual legally as long as you're not going and directly injecting them with, uh, with a poison. Then that would be murder, but you can kill them by, by destroying the things that they require for their, for their well-being. Uh, and that's, that's operating at, at a, a deeper basis through um, public education, state-run education, through uh, all of these institutions that produce the mythology of Western civilization and convince us that we are these other uh, things, these, these uh, individuals, uh, which is kind of a, a strange construction. Um, uh, but yeah, the, um, uh, definitely uh, in a lot of ways, democracies are a more stable form of governance. So uh, as long as people are not uh, in the streets and overpowering the police on a frequent basis and showing their ability to overthrow the government and requiring the military to be, to be brought out in the streets, um, most uh, uh, capitalists, most business interests prefer democracy because of the stabi stability that, uh, that it provides. Um, however, uh, in the last few decades, uh, more and more democracies have been able to avail themselves of um, extreme forms of punishment uh, based on these sorts of states of exception. So you have uh, perpetual imprisonment, you have extreme forms of punishment that can be used against uh, um, subversive political actors if they can be portrayed as terrorists. So the sort of anti-terrorism politics, which actually comes from um, uh, certain post-fascist societies, 
has been incorporated into democracy. So now democracies have even more tools for repression. So they, uh, they don't need to revert to dictatorships, to military dictatorships with as much frequency. Um, because if you look at like 100 years ago or in some places even 50 years ago, the idea of locking someone up for life, of, of um, um, uh, perpetual imprisonment, uh, was seen as, as, as really barbaric, as extreme, as, as unacceptable. Um, and so the democracies were more infused with this idea of amnesty, uh, which has, has pretty much completely gone out the window. Um, so, so nowadays, democratic governments have all of their historical advantages and much fewer of their disadvantages in terms of repressive powers. Submedia is a proud member of the Channel Zero network of anarchist podcasts. For more great anarchist content, check out channelzeronetwork.com. Yeah, 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 yeah. This is M1, M-A uno, M-A de la gente, comprende y entende, you feel me? I'm one half of dead prayers to tell it like it is. Everything is political rap duo. Here holding my middle finger up to imperialism worldwide. And you in tune right now to the rebel beat. The Rebel Beat is a monthly podcast of radical political music across different genres and across different continents. It's the mixtape to a riot against police brutality. It's your nightly newscast set to bass and beats. It's protest anthems from Hong Kong to Istanbul to Ferguson to Montreal. Give it a listen at rebelbeatradio.com or subscribe today on all your favorite podcast platforms. Diving right back into our interview with Peter Gelderlos, we asked about the specific examples of counterinsurgency that played out in Spain in 2015 via the two policing operations known as Pandora and Piñata. He touched on the different discourses and tactics used in the lead-up, during the operations themselves, and in the ensuing years. At a certain point, um, around... Uh, 2014, there was a change in, in the repressive discourses of the Spanish state. Uh, prior to that, the internal enemy that they identified uh, were the antisistema, was the term that they, they used, the anti-system people. This lumped together um, squatters, uh, the radical part of the independence movements in Catalonia, Galicia, other places, um, anarchists, or rather uh, the sort of extra-institutional part of the anarchists, um, Maybe making a division between like uh, a difference between responsible anarchists and anarchists who who um, uh, participated in these historically hard to question organizations like uh, like the CNT uh, and then these uh, more like autonomous uh, anarchists. Um, after after a certain point, especially when you start you started seeing uh, really um, combative uh, large general strikes. Uh, that were uh, kind of getting out of the state's control. Uh, and when you had increasingly effective anarchist participation in a number of struggles, uh, the housing struggle, uh, the struggle against uh, these austerity measures, um, the, the state pretty dramatically shifted gears and started talking about uh, anarchist terrorism and anarchists as, as the internal enemy. Um, the media uh, really went into overdrive, manufacturing stories about uh, uh, violent anarchists from Italy coming over and teaching, 
teaching uh, Spanish or Catalan anarchists how to riot, things like that. Um, and I would say that even though they were discursively targeting anarchists, of course they were looking, the state was looking at the situation as a whole. Um, I think they were also maybe trying to train uh, non-anarchist members of social movements to identify certain combative tactics, which anyone can use, uh, rioting, sabotage, and so forth, fighting with police. Uh, they were training people to identify those tactics with anarchists. So that those who didn't personally identify as anarchists would distance themselves um, from those tactics. So on the one hand, it was an identification uh, of anarchists as a principal threat, but anarchists on the other hand shouldn't get too uh, proud or cocky or think, think of ourselves as uh, the only threat um, to the Spanish state, of course, because uh, this was also a sort of um, identitarian strategy to get other sectors of the movements to step back from the anarchists and leave the anarchists isolated, both as concrete individuals and organizations who were arrested and facing repression, and also as practices. Uh, practices that could be defined as anarchistic uh, because they're horizontal, because they're combative, but practices that really anyone could use and that increasing numbers of people uh, were using. Um, at least in Catalonia, uh, the repression of uh, Operation Pandora, um, which is actually two distinct operations, uh, didn't have the desired effect. Instead of stepping back from anarchists, lots of people came to the support of anarchists with this sort of uh, classic and still quite effective strategy of we are all anarchists, uh, we are all X, who, you know, X being whoever's um, being repressed in a given moment. And so that uh, defeated, um, I think, the primary uh, a push or the primary objective of repression, which is enclosure, isolation. Uh, after those uh, repressive campaigns, anarchists were less isolated rather than more isolated. But still, uh, repression can has secondary objectives that it can fulfill of um, making people afraid, exhausting people because there's a whole lot of work that has to be done when our when our friends and comrades get arrested. There's raising money, there's getting lawyers, there's uh, sending letters and books and, and packages uh, to them while they're in prison, uh, arranging visits, supporting their family members, supporting their immediate circles, uh, repairing the doors of the, the houses and social centers that uh, police have busted into, replacing all of the um, electronics, laptops, etc., that police systematically steal and cash uh, that police systematically steal when they when they conduct these raids. Um, and it's it's pretty hard to avoid that repression is exhausting. So even if you can defeat the fear factor, even if you can make people feel more bold and more able to stand up to police repression, and even if you can get a lot of other people to come out in the streets to support you, to identify with you, uh, you can't really keep repression from being exhausting uh, and maybe becoming our primary focus. So we forget about some of our other projects and we, we focus on the repression. Um, however, we can adopt more effective strategies at minimizing the exhaustion, uh, looking at um, ways that people who are locked up can continue participating in the struggles, uh, giving more importance to questions of care, finding more sustainable practices of, of struggle instead of like this, uh, trying to, to fulfill this constant rhythm of, uh, of, of protest and antagonism. Also. Uh, putting more emphasis in the organization of our of our vital needs, the organization of daily life, so that our struggle isn't just taking uh, sapping energy; it's also giving us more energy and allowing to um, uh, to put uh, communal relations, put our ideas into practice. Um, so uh, the anti-terrorist operations directed against anarchists here, Pandora and Piñata uh, and ICE. Um, 
were, um, uh, I guess, um, they were partially effective in terms of exhausting people, in terms of causing certain projects to uh, to shut down, but they certainly didn't achieve their primary objectives. And um, some groups uh, did find effective strategies at sustaining themselves as they responded to uh, to repression. Um, since then, uh, there haven't been new um, uh, anti-terrorism uh, campaigns against anarchists in a couple of years. Uh, we're sort of waiting to see how their strategies will will change, uh, what what the next measures will be. Um, in Barcelona, simple economics uh, is um, uh, proving to be quite effective, forcing people out of their neighborhoods, uh, raising rents, bringing in a whole bunch of tourists, making the city uninhabitable. Um, and, and that's something that uh, people here, I don't think, have found a, um, a satisfactory response to. Uh, although of course there's there's lots of um, uh, lots of campaigns, lots of lots of attempts. Um, so so in, in the meantime, we're sort of uh, uh, waiting. The the police. I mean, for a while we were going through this rhythm of uh, uh, every year, even twice a year, a new a new round of uh, of major arrests under the anti-terrorism law. For now, that seems to to have stopped, to have run its course. Um, and, uh, and there are all sorts of repressive measures that are built into capitalism, that are built into democratic government that, of course, uh, aren't going anywhere. They haven't disappeared. They haven't uh, abated. Um, and, uh, well, yeah, people are deploying new strategies, uh, looking for new, new terrains of struggle and conflict. And uh, as always, the, the, um, the story hasn't come to its end. So. To close things out, we asked for Peter's take on the importance of anarchists and other radicals learning the theory, principles, and tactics behind state counterinsurgency, and to offer some specific steps for how to turn these lessons into practical strategies on the ground. The more that we can spread awareness of counterinsurgency beyond anarchist circles, uh, the more uh, support we can win, the more people will understand uh, the methods we use, why we um, uh, simply choose uh, antagonistic and combative methods vis-a-vis -vis the state. Because once you understand that states organize according to a philosophy of counterinsurgency, ideas of democratic participation uh, are revealed as absurdities. Um, people understand that the state views them as their enemy or as their potential enemy, uh, and certainly as a threat. Um, and so people understand that when we talk about social war, uh, it's not because we like war, we like violence, but because the state started the social war, the state, the existence of the state is a social war. It's constant warfare against all of us. Uh, so we can either uh, defend ourselves and fight back or we can fall in line and, and accept um, one form of, of submission and slavery or another uh, mediated by our position in various social hierarchies uh, ranging from gender, citizenship, ethnicity, uh, to, to race and class and so forth. Um, all of these hierarchies, of course, serving to, to break people apart, to, to create, uh, basically to divide and conquer, to, to create antagonisms um, within government pop populations, and also because they reflect uh, certain um, uh, philosophies of power. Uh, of course, racism isn't just a simple Machiavellian tool uh, by the state. It also reflects the way that um, uh, state actors view the world and view the, the peoples that they... Um, uh, colonize or otherwise dominate. Um, 
And specifically within anarchist circles, if we uh, uh, get more nuanced understandings and, and encourage more nuanced understandings of how counterinsurgency works, um, it will certainly help us avoid uh, recuperation. Uh, it will help us identify uh, recuperation and know how not to fall into that trap. Because more often than not, uh, recuperation works if, if we participate in it in some way. Um, and it will also help us uh, improve our anti-repressive strategies, especially at the point that we realize that uh, repression is primarily uh, an enclosure mechanism, mechanism, a mechanism for isolating people, then we'll begin to put more importance on um, uh, creating broader social relationships, uh, breaking out of enclosures, uh, avoiding isolation, and certainly giving up on strategies that, that basically amount to self-isolation. So on the one hand, it encourages um, more strategies of, of social engagement and, uh, and creating relationships that uh, defy enclosure and isolation, relationships with neighbors, relationships with coworkers, relationships with family members, and so forth, presence in different social conflicts. Uh, and it also makes um, uh, more, it reveals more populist strategies as being ways of participating in our own pacification. Uh, it reveals that there's really no way to stay safe, no way to play it safe, um, and that simply um, modifying our discourses to arrive to more people, to appeal to a mass audience, uh, is, is another way of um, uh, protecting the legitimacy of state institutions by limiting our critiques to only some institutions and not others. Uh, it's a way to, uh, to pacify ourselves and therefore uh, help the state uh, maintain conflict at these lower, more peaceful levels. Um, so, so yeah, I think an understanding of counterinsurgency uh, allows us to be effectively antagonistic. So neither self-pacifying nor uh, self-isolating. Um, steps that people can take. Uh, let's see. Um, spreading, spreading discourses, spreading histories, spreading knowledge of what the term social war means, what's the history behind that, and, and why that's very real, why that's uh, not just a slogan, but, uh, but a, a very accurate and, and rich way of, of understanding the society that we live in. Um, uh, other steps uh, have to do with how, how people respond to repression or to uh, recuperation, how we communicate the relation between different institutions. Uh, how we how we point out the way that seemingly um, disparate or even um, diametrically opposed strategies for social control are just that strategies of social control that that are complementary. So, for example, uh, in in the U.S., that would be showing how um, the supposed anti-racism of the media uh, is actually, um, uh, in terms of like media's response to Trump. Uh, is trying to achieve some of the exact same things that Trump and that the uh, KKK in the streets uh, are, are trying to achieve. Um, so, uh, for example, the far right uh, wants to uh, protect uh, statues of, uh, of Confederate military figures. Uh, 
whereas the, um, the, the, the institutions that are in the process of recovering their legitimacy are willing to abandon uh, General Lee and the statues to unknown Confederate army soldiers in order to draw a line to protect the, the statues to Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and other slave owners. Uh, so sort of um, trying to draw an ethical line between whether someone was a, uh, a figure who, uh, who helped build up the supposedly great state or whether they were uh, a figure who fought against that state. Um, when really the ethical lines should maybe have something to do with the enslavement of other human beings and uh, things of that nature. Um, but yeah, uh, other, other steps towards um, integrating effective counter-counter-insurgency uh, strategies. Um, increasing lines of, of learning, solidarity, and sharing uh, between struggles on an international level. Uh, the states... Uh, states, different states, uh, the US, the United Kingdom, France, they had access to an international range of experiences. They were studying uh, insurgencies in Kenya and in Brixton, in Algeria and in uh, Los Angeles. Um, that, I mean, that's, that's very real. Obviously, we go up against different configurations of power uh, where we go up against sort of different uh, a game that's played by somewhat different rules. Uh, I mean, in certain countries, supposedly the state's not supposed to kill large numbers of people. Uh, it does, but it has to hide it much, much better and it has to give us more rights. In other countries, it's uh, considered acceptable if uh, 100,000 people die um, uh, uh, every day. Um, so questions of privilege, questions of oppression definitely come into it, but it's still the same system that we're fighting up, uh, fighting against. It's the same mentality and we need to build international solidarity that breaks down these divisions, that breaks down these, these, uh, differences and helps us share lessons and also helps us, uh, identify with one another, uh, uh, because we're, we're fighting against the, uh, the same machine and we need to, to learn more from one another and share resources and share experiences, uh, more, um, more frequently and at a more intense level. And that's where we'll leave it. We have been lucky enough to connect with Peter a few times over the years, so stay tuned for more of his great interviews and future episodes. In the meantime, if you want to read more of Peter's perspectives, check out his numerous books, the most recent of which goes even more in-depth on the topic of militarization. It's called Worshipping Power, an Anarchist View of Early State Formation. Submedia is entirely funded by our viewers and listeners, so if you're in a position to help out, visit sub.media slash donate, or pick up some of our merch at sub.media slash gear. If money's tight but you still want to support the show, consider leaving a 5-star review on your podcast platform of choice, as well as telling a friend or two about why you listen to Circle A. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.